Nope, forgot what it was. That Minnesota. Means. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there it is. Yeah, Why it is every that. time? <laughs> What's it? You like? Oh, Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over drinks. We prepare special for them. I'm Luther Hughes. I'm Gabrielle Bates. And I'm Duji Tahat. <clears throat> Today we are talking to Denez Smith. Denez is a black, queer, posh writer and performer from St. Paul, Minnesota. Denez is the author of Don't Call Us Dead, winner of the Ford Prize for Best Collection, the Midwest Booksellers Choice Award, and finalist for the National Book Award, and Insert Boy, winner of the K. Tuff Discovery Award and the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Poetry. They're a recipient of the fellowships from Poetry Foundation, the McKnight Foundation, Kaveh Khanum, and the National Diamond for the Arts. That is the NEA, y'all. Denez's work has been featured widely, including on BuzzFeed, the New York Times, PBS Hour, Best American Poetry, and Poetry Magazine. Dennis is a member of Dark Noise Collective and is the co-host of Verses with Franny Choi, a podcast sponsored by the Poetry Foundation and Post Loudness. Dennis' third collection, Homie, will be published by Grey Wolf in spring 2020. But before we get to Dennis, we have one question for you. Fangirl Frank says, OMG, I just found out my favorite poet is going to be in my city next week. I don't want the opportunity to meet them to pass me by, but when I think about introducing myself, my legs feel like Swedish fish. Help! Hear me out, Frank. It's going to be okay. You just show up and you say what's in your heart, and hopefully they forget about it. That's Are you not. speaking from personal experience, Dougie? Well, one time, <laughs> I uh, I won an hour-long Skype editorial session with uh, one Safia El Hilo, who is, uh, you know, a transcendent American poet and uh, someone I've had a little bit of a poetry crush on since I was a teenager mm, mm. Um, from That's Brave rough. New Voices. And, you know, I played the whole session cool. I've been really good, you know, asking her questions about her MFA program, and she gave me some really insightful things, honestly, on the poetry stuff that was really helpful. And those poems, like, they were better for that conversation. And then in the last five minutes, I lost everything. Like, oh. the room started spinning. Oh. <laughs> everything got blurry. Oh, God. And the words just became a jumble, and I didn't know where one started and one ended. All I was trying to say was thank you, mm. and I appreciate you. Uh, and the words that you have given me <laughs> in this moment. Um, but it ended up coming out like, I wish, thank, give, I hope, someday, <laughs> you, I. <laughs> and the next thing I remembered, I was uh, lying on my bed, staring at the ceiling, wondering what the fuck just happened. <laughs> So but you're okay now. I am. It's I okay. It. I'm okay with it. Um, I only hold on to the fact that I hope Safi has forgotten completely entirely mm. everything about it. So She's probably listening to this now and remembering. I'm so, so sorry, Safia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so much more articulate than that moment. <laughs> Demonstrates, I promise. <laughs> okay, so for Fangirl Frank, your advice is just embarrass yourself and yeah. hope to move on like we've all done that exactly i really do feel like all of us have had moments like that yeah. luther have you had a moment like that no <gasps> <laughs> luther's too cool 
only because uh, actually I don't know why I have not experienced that, but I think it's because I try to keep it cool mm. and. If I don't know what to say, I probably won't say anything at all. Yeah. So, okay. Um, imagine Sharon Olds is in the room. Oh, uh, I'm automatically melting. Yeah. Okay. So you're melted. Do you just not talk to her because you know you would probably be a puddle or do you articulate something you would say to her, deliver it like a speech and then run away? I probably would want to talk to her. Um, that was not the question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I would. I would. One, I would have nothing probably planned out to say to her. Um, cause I don't know what to even ask her, mm. right? Um, but I wouldn't let the moment slide where I don't say something to her. Um, either it'd be one-on-one or I'm, I'm sure it's always going to be a Q&A. <laughs> so I'm going to ask a question in the Q&A purposely. It can be the dumbest question, but I'm going to say something. Um, so will I embarrass myself? I'm not easily embarrassed, though. So mm. um, That must be nice. That's... It is helpful. a gift. I don't uh, have that gift. It is not always a good gift because I don't care. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Maybe so, you should. Yeah, yeah I Sometimes, should. I should yeah. have some kind of like shame <laughs> in there, but I'm not easily shamed. So I'm just like, I don't care. Yeah. Um, That's great. I mean, I think, I think what we're sort of getting at and certainly what I think about is like, maybe we should just like give famous poets like the grace to, to like be people mm-hmm. and like acknowledge. They're human beings. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so like, Surprise. you know what? You can mess up in front of them and like, they'll be hopefully really human about it and be like, right, I remember when I messed mm-hmm. up and said some really weird shit. Or like yeah. Fangirled in front of the wrong person or whatever. I'm a fan of just the simple like, I just wanted to thank you so much for your work and like not really expecting them to say anything back, like almost like a drive by, like not <laughs> drive by like, compliments. Yeah. yeah. But actually though, cause, cause Ta-da. I think it's hard. For, <laughs> it's hard for people to accept compliments full stop, like in real life. And so I think a lot of the discomfort we pick up on when we're fangirling to someone in the flesh is that they are uncomfortable receiving compliments about their work. Like that's a hard thing to do. But if you don't really expect them to respond and you're just like, I'm just going to throw this compliment and run away. That's what I found to be a comfort zone. I think also Twitter has made, it made a lot of things feel more uh, down to earth. And so like posts who I would fangirl over before, I knew on Twitter. And so it was more like, oh, hey, I, like, we're meeting finally for the first time, da, 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 versus, oh my God, this person is talking to me. Speaking of famous poets. Get excited for this interview with Denise Smith. So reading for the National Book Awards was both a joy and a challenge. Uh, I don't think I would do it again for another couple of years just because of how much brain space it takes over. Um, so we read, um, every committee gets their like different number of books and everybody handles it in different ways, right? So like nonfiction, they get probably around 500 plus books. Um, but they don't read them all because all, all of those books are usually 500 plus pages as well. So they, I think, tend to split them up a little bit for different ways. Poetry, we decided that we would read every book. Mm-hmm. For us, that was um, somewhere in the 300 range for books. I forget the exact number. Um, but above 300 books that we all decided to read. Um, those books show up to your door as they start showing up as early as March, I think. And they have until July 1st to get submitted. 
Um, so pretty much that leaves you with March, assuming some books start coming on time until the end of August to basically form the long list. Uh, so it's a, a really intensive process. Um, you know, for me, I had to understand I, I, I sort of my golden rule when I started out was like, OK, I will give everybody the first 10 and the last 10 pages of the book uh, to sort of decide whether the, the middle is worth perusing about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at, at first I was like, I was trying to read everything. And eventually uh, Mary Jo Bang, who was our chair, like we had a talk. She was like, you just got to move the fuck on. And I was like, OK, can we cut on this podcast? Yeah. OK, so she was like, you said you got to move the fuck on. Um, and it was true. I was trying. I was. I think I was being a little bit too generous to some books to be like, oh, well, maybe the book will start on page 40. And I'll start like, <laughs> you know, I was like, like, no, Danez, like, you know, sometimes. But also, I think um, there were a lot of things. That same process also made me be a lot more patient with books that need a little bit more time. You know, there are books that can knock you off your socks right away and there are other things that require a second a third reading to really unlock their pleasures and their delights for you and so i was it was really a a a nice way to re-meet myself as a reader um to know what i was immediately attracted to to know that i was curious about but needed a little more time with i felt like i found a, a crap ton of new writers to be a fan of uh and so yeah so the process was long i basically for six months if i wasn't reading a book i was fucking up Uh, um, and the actual process, I don't know how much I can really give away, but I will say that I have a lot more respect for other judging panels now, Mm. having done such a big one. And this time, you know, the National Book Awards, there's like horror stories of judging panels. There's also like success stories. I think we got along Mm. for the most part. We, um, tried to be as unanimous as possible in all our decisions. Um, books only got to move forward on any list if there were multiple supporters um so we were always trying to root for something that reflected the taste of the entire panel um instead of one person sort of just forcing a book down everybody's throat how had this happened last year and i think we all left as friends instead of you know waiting to write our memoirs so we can trash (laughs) each other um about the process you know it was interesting to see you know i think folks would really you know i as a person who just loves writers and like loves books you know a part there's a part of me that wants to go up and whisper into every poet ear just like I know you went on the long list but like you were this close and did it or like we really love your collection so much and you, I also know how 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 cruel that would also be to tell somebody that um and it's interesting to see you know books that made it on the long list or the short list right um those discussions become really interesting you see a book go from all the way at the top to being like oh how did that not make it or how did whatever um at any point in the process, you know, so it's a it's an interesting process to see how those lists that can feel so cut and dry from the outside um, get made up and to think about all the hours of reading and negotiation and deliberation and arguing that go into that list of 10 and then that list of five. It's really amazing. I thought at the end of the day um, for this year that we all really loved our, our top five and our top 10 books. Um, really, when we got to the top 10, we were just like, well, what do we do now? We love all 10 of these, um, you know. And we could see a short list that included so many of those books. Same way with the winner. You know, I'm very happy for Justin Phillip Reed for taking home the gold. Um, But I think, you know, so much of it is um, kind of in the wind. You know, maybe if we were in a slightly different mood the day that we picked, maybe it would have been somebody else. Um, And, you know, I think at some point in my mind, all five of those books had won at a certain point in time, um, even with my own deliberations. And so it was a very magical process. I don't suggest doing it if you like have a job uh, <laughs> or like a young child. I respect all the members of the panels who have jobs and children and stuff like that, who they had to tend to while tending to all those books. But it was an amazing process and it was so 
warming to walk away knowing how good of a state contemporary poetry is in mm. after reading all those collections yeah so 2018 was a good year for books I'm glad i got to read through it yeah thank you for that i mm. think we're all really curious about that process and nobody really talks about it ever so i almost like wanted to know more about it and how that looks and works and i didn't know it was like constant conversation after the long list and then again with the short list and then picking the win i thought it was like more like a there's a long list and then the chair talks to the you know the board like mm-hmm. you know, some other like weird political stuff but it seems very like conversational and very just like digging into each book mm-hmm. every time so. I think you can and I think there are some committees who oh, okay. do do a little bit more of a hands off approach oh, um, okay. we talked once all the books were in we talked every I want to say every two weeks oh wow um, about the books you know as we sort of culled our list from like a big list of like 30 or 40 books on mm-hmm. down um, to the 10 and then to the 5 yeah so we talked a, we talked a lot Okay. 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 <laughs> we were chatty bunch, which was good, um, and it helped us learn to l- know each other's tastes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, there were things that I maybe wouldn't have given a second thought unless Ken Chen was there to say, "Hey, mm-hmm. like pick this up again." You know. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. I feel like anytime you're reading that many collections in such a small, concentrated period of time, it would give you a really interesting pulse on what the trends are in mm-hmm. contemporary poetry. Were there any mm-hmm. things you noticed? happening again and again that seemed emblematic maybe of this moment or Mm. like it could be formally it could be content um and if nothing comes to mind that's totally fine too i'm just curious to maybe in terms of form you know for a long time i thought the sonnet was making a comeback (laughs) um and i think after Mm -hmm. reading through this year it officially has Uh, you know whether it be (laughs) mary b tarant hayes's uh book you know american sonnets for Mm -hmm. my past and future assassin um, there was a debut collection called Fats on It. Um, mm-hmm. okay, I'm blanking on the writer's name right now, but she's incredible. Uh, and even, you know, all going through all these poems, all these books and poems, you sort of sneak through. She's like, oh, another 14 line poem. Okay, cool. cool, cool. Sonnet. That's how, yeah, yeah, you know, at least a loose sonnet, right? right. Um, so I think, yeah, I think American writers are definitely more interested in form than I think sometimes in, mm. in the public uh, discourse about it that we give them credit for. Mm. Um, I think that there has been a return to rhyme in some super interesting ways, and folks are handling that. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited for. Jericho Brown's book The Tradition next year because I really think he's playing around with rhyme in some mm-hmm. really cool ways these days um, anything I, just, I think folks are strong and I think you know you maybe in terms of like you know when we talk about like how old cruggy white folks usually feel about poetry like they tend to shy away or definitely shame the more political or mm-hmm. um, urgently confessional stuff that's going on but I think a lot of that started to be um, some of the best work that I think that rose to the top for me. And it was mm. easy, you know, I think we, as, at least as far as the committee, we tried to not be so easily um, persuaded by, like, the the personal lyric. Because mm. um, I think that it, it is a really delicious drug that it's really easy <laughs> to bite into. Mm. Uh, so true. Because there's also mm. a lot of really, like, strange, um, smart, sort of apoetical stuff going on in the world, too. And I think mm. it was important to read through some of those work and see like you know how people are sort of going against the lyric these days as well mm-hmm. and sort of rejecting it um so a lot of different themes and ways uh, but it was i think it was just so lovely to see how many people are writing these mm-hmm. days you know um if we're going to talk about like true diversity or whatever i hate that i hate the new <laughs> word uh <laughs> but uh, but it was gorgeous um to read through so many different stories that I just feel like I'm like, oh, wow, poetry is so abundant right now um, in terms of how folks are thinking and who's thinking um, and the spaces that those thoughts are allowed to enter. So, yeah. Cool. So moving from sort of contemporary poetry Mm -hmm. and moving upstream a little bit, uh, I want to talk a little bit about 
maybe your origin uh, or mm-hmm. just youth speaks uh, youth slam culture generally because mm-hmm. I think a lot of the uh, sort of head of contemporary American poetry like you can look there for the future mm-hmm. of American poetry yeah. certainly mm-hmm. um, I'm curious for you during your come up how you think of audience now versus sort of audience then hmm um I think okay that's a good question I, <laughs> mm. I think when I was like a baby little slam poet uh audience for me um was something that held a reward that I was very much interested mm. in actual in receiving points. yeah actual literal yeah. points right like if I can make if I can make those people scream loud enough or like mm. cry or whatever, mm-hmm. then I get to go to the next round of the slam or like, I, like it was material stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, I started slamming um, in youth poetry slams that were attached to going to Brave New Voices, which is a huge international youth poetry slam. And so I was like, okay, if I win this, I get a trip to New York, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. that was a very material want that I that I wanted. I, it was damn, like, kind of screw poetry. No, it wasn't <laughs> screw poetry. It was like, I, I want to go to New York to hang out with all the other poets, yeah. but I did want to go to New York. Yeah. Um, and so there was something very much transactional that I felt um, with an audience. And I think it also teaches you sort of like the trick of slam is to sort of i don't know it's a form at the end of the day and mm-hmm. so i was becoming um literate and cognizant in how to do the things that slam asks you to do in order to be mm-hmm. successful within it uh and now i think i am i don't want to say less interested in audience but i'm more interested in communicating with an audience and sort of getting something out of them mm-hmm. uh, maybe i'm interested in what we can get out of each other and what i have mm-hmm. to offer a little bit more uh and i'm less uh, interested in sort of the general audience that Slam sort of asks you to be allegiant to, which is sort of like acceptable and great in any room. Mm-hmm. Um, and, though, and though I feel like a bad bitch and I think I'm good in most rooms, uh, <laughs> um, I know which rooms that I'm actually asking for um, permission to enter now instead mm-hmm. of just this like general like sort of Slam audience thing. Uh, and I think I'm a little less tied to the idea of performance off the bat as I was when, you know, I was younger, uh, up until, you know, somewhere in college, I think I was writing as a consequence of getting on stage, right? And so the stage was always sort of the final realm of publication, if you will, mm-hmm. um, for a poem. You know, that was always going to be the avenue by which I understood that I was connecting with folks. And so I think something about that changes and maybe becomes a little bit more insular and personal or even strange and complicated when um when the first avenue tends to be the page and then it becomes a larger question of like okay well what next um now that it's transcribed now that it's like scribbled on the wall what else can i do with it um which maybe changes the question of like who do i show this to now um and in what ways do i want to interact with them yeah that's that's my follow-up question (laughs) (laughs) who do you like how do you navigate that and or i think there's some relation here too to as far as poets can be famous i mean Mm -hmm. you're a famous poet right and you are operating in spaces that are very different Mm -hmm. right than that youth open mic Mm -hmm. uh that little denez was at. yeah (laughs) so how do you do you think about though the difference in those rooms and Hmm. when you're deciding sort of when you're specifying your audience which it sounds like you have a little firmer grasp on Mm -hmm. like what are the calculations you're making or like does it come uh, you know how do you reconcile those 
Um, I think it's a question of like, what is the greatest impact that I can make if I walk into this space? Mm. Um, and so I think the poems that I'll send to say like Poetry Magazine will be different than the poem that I choose to publish in like my local newspaper um, or different than the poem that if my like barber was to ask me to like print out a poem so we can put it up in the shop, right? Mm. Like mm. all those considerations I'm gonna are gonna be a little bit different. Um, and also thinking about accessibility, you know, I tend um, not to put stuff that I want to be sort of loud and alive and in the world that I think is useful to teachers. I try not to bury that in like a print journal, um, mm. right? And so I try mm. to put the poems that I feel like, okay, I think this has um, some good possibility for everyone. Those are gonna go on the internet, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I. Th I Hmm. I just think about the ways in which I think I guess poems move once that once they're beyond the initial act of publication yeah. um, and thinking about how I can be a force to help it get there. And there are spaces, too, that I think I would love poems that they're not right now. Yeah. You know, I would love um, to have to like publish more. And maybe this is this is about my own laziness, too, and like not reaching out. But I would love to have you know, poems in like smaller queer, you know, magazines and zines and um, spaces that are specifically interested in like talking to like black queer folks or um, maybe, you know, sending work to, you know, budding literary journals or stuff like that or, um, and, and being a little bit looser with it. The problem that I have now is that I don't, create work at the same speed that I used to. <laughs> and, so, mm. and so now I'm like, well, shit, I only have three poems to publish this year. Um, they better be some good places. <laughs> That's pain. Yeah. It's, it's pain. pain. Y'all cute, but I gotta get paid. Y'all yeah, cute, but poetry out here giving folks $10 a line, honey. Oh. A line. 300 minimum, girl. You damn right I'll be sending them them long poem shit. Daddy gotta pay rent. <laughs> Look here. Hmm. Speaking of long poems, yeah. uh, that segues nicely. Um, I've been thinking a lot about all the epistolary moments that are in your most recent book, mm -hmm. Don't Call Us Dead, and they seem to really congregate in that opening long sequence, mm -hmm. Summer Somewhere. Um, I took note of a few of them. So let's see. So we get like, dear host I made, dear mm -hmm. badge number, dear heir where you used to be, dear brother from another time, etc. Um, and I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about your relationship to the epistolary form um, and what maybe beginning a poem or part of a poem with dear, what that breaks open for you or maybe even shuts off for you hmm. when you're writing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those dears were like a late addition. Uh, the poems originally still had an epistolary mode to them, um, at least in terms of the logic, but they didn't have those dear moments going on they were just the sort of italicized sections that were like pushed right up against each other on the page um, along the spine and i only added in the dears as i was like i just want to be clear that these are letters uh, <laughs> um mm -hmm. and that there was something different happening in those epistolary moments in the rest of the sequence which just tends to be this sort of like disembodied or multi-bodied i that is speaking uh and yeah so the epistolary moments i don't know i think uh, the most personal you can get to a poem is either to speak to yourself or to speak to a you. Um, and to have that you be intimate and known and not shapeless, I think, um, adds a lot of texture and dimension to a poem that I think you lose if you allow that you to sort of float out there in anybody-ness. Um, so yeah, I wanted those moments to, to feel a little bit more closed um more private more like uh like eavesdropping um mm -hmm. and i think that's what the sort of epistolary mode can do for a poem it's it's no longer concerned with me as 
the reader um, or even as the writer, but it's about sort of trying to mine um, this most intimate space, which is, I think, you know, uh, I think what what could what could be more intimate? Like, has anybody ever has anybody written you a letter in like the last 10 years? Didn't that feel like some big shit? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What an act of kindness. And I think, you know, to allow for that sort of same mode of taking the time to write a letter, that same sort of. Um, passion and love and giggliness and like you know concern that that fills us with I think to apply that to the poem makes sense yeah. as a matter of process I'm thinking of what is it elegy with pixel and come mm-hmm. when the end sort of becomes just my blood his blood sort of over again uh, oh you mean um litany with blood all over my bad yeah, that's all right um uh I'm curious I guess uh, in poems about crap blood. <laughs> <laughs> uh in crafting the poem, at what point do you sort of measure riskiness against it, if it's worth it? Like a more visual poetic moment, perhaps, right, than... Right. Um, How do you have sort of faith in in the thing? I have yeah. faith in the attempt, only mm. because I know that editing is my friend. Um, you know, and so um, for me, when drafting, there is no risk too grand. Mm. Um, because mm. as long as it's not, as long as I'm not hitting submit um, or like signing that contributor's agreement, then I can still <laughs> take it back, you know? Sure. Um, and so I think, you know, what, what there is no safer space to be bad or corny um, or over obvious or overwrought or whatever it is, um, then in the space of drafting a poem, you know, that is the time um, to experiment before you embarrass yourself in public. Mm. Um, but that only comes with the sort of private embarrassments that come with working on a, on a poem by yourself, you know? And so um, so I, I guess for me, the, there is never a question of like, what is too risky as long as I'm still in that drafting point. Mm. Um, it can be my, I think the question is like, am, am I being risky enough? Mm. Um, and oftentimes I think I fall short of that <laughs> um, because of the poet that I think I'm interested in being. Mm. Um, is that I, I do, I think, sort of curtail some risk um, totally. uh, at the expense of sort of keeping um, my audience with me. Um, or, you know, I'm interested in accessibility in a, in a particular kind of way. Uh, so, so yeah, so I, I say risk it all. Um, and, espe- and especially when it comes to that visual format, I think that is um, something that does come along definitely in the editing process. I tend to write uh, in couplets or in prose blocks. Those are like the two easiest ways um, for me to just get the words out, whether it be by longhand or on a computer. Computer, sometimes I can start to play around with form a little bit more, but I'm also trying to gravitate away from the computer a little bit um, as we as I go further in poems. Uh, so, what the fuck was I talking about? Uh, <laughs> and so the visual play, the yeah. visual play. Can, um, can I ask sort of how, how, what do you do to cultivate sort of giving yourself that permission, right? I think you're talking about, there's a lot of self-revision that happens right before you even mm-hmm. take that risk or you write that down. So are there sort of tactical things that you do for yourself? I get high, um, which helps a lot. I mean, yeah. I, you know, um, I think drugs are bad um, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, and... I, I don't know, for years, especially when I was writing um, Don't Call Us Dead and Insert Boy, I, I very much had like a write, high, edit, sober mm. uh, mentality just because it would let me it would let go of like yeah. sort of my, my internal editor and I would just be free to like be goofy and to think that my worst shit was the shit for a little <laughs> bit. Um, and then to be able to come back, you know, with a new eye and be able to say, okay, bitch, you was tripping. <laughs> <laughs> relax, relax. You were really <laughs> tripping. You were really tripping, but those three lines in the middle are great. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Keep those lines. Yeah, keep those. Keep those. Put those aside. Yeah. Um, 
You know, I I, 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 I don't, but besides that little goofy answer, I don't think there is any point of advice that I could give about how to get there. I think it's about just learning to trust your own voice, um, to trust the the things that you have been encouraged to dive deeper into by your editors, whether those be peers or mentors or whoever, uh, and just being willing to be messy for a little bit, you know? Um, I am not interested in perfection within the space of a draft, mm-hmm. um, especially a first draft. And so why not, um, why not try? You know, I went through, with writing this new book, I went through um, about seven months of really intense writer's block. Mm-hmm. Um, and not writer's block as in I couldn't write, but I couldn't write shit good. <laughs> uh, sometimes the idea was there. Sometimes there'd be like a nice word mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> somewhere in the space of that. But for like seven months, I wrote absolute trash. <laughs> um, trash, I tells you. And so, um, but I didn't stop writing, you know, but I didn't stop writing. Um, I was, I, I just sort of fully invested in my trash yeah. uh, and leaned hard into it. And you know, I think that's what you have to do. You have to love your trash just because you have to love understand that. Yeah. Maybe, and maybe there's a little bit of treasure somewhere in there. And so, um, and I wouldn't have got back to writing things that were at least halfway decent um, if I had ran away from that trash either. I had to mm. sort of allow words to happen um, within my mind the way they were happening at the time, even if that was, uninspired <laughs> or or rather corny and bland actually it was just too it was too easy the love in those poems was too easy mm. um i was maybe a little bit too happy to write poems for a little bit mm. <laughs> That's real. um and yeah um but I, but i yeah i think it's it's not there's no there's no trick um to taking the risk it's just allowing yourself the the space for failure mm. yeah um you mentioned earlier it's funny you mentioned earlier about writing in couplets and stanzas and mm-hmm. my next question actually is about binary and forms right mm-hmm. like um and i see in don't call it that particularly you have a lot of poems and couplets mm-hmm. and a few in stanza blocks right mm-hmm. and so when i see the couplets forms i'm thinking the poems lean more towards a kind of joy or kind of uh perseverance mm-hmm. and then the poems that are like stanzas are more about uh the more rooted in kind of a grief and a haunting and so i'm wondering mm-hmm. about the binary uh and the uses of form in don't call it dead and i guess period but how does that work and mm-hmm. how is that working for you when you sit down to write a poem do you think mm-hmm. okay joy leads up to a kind of a couplet kind of form or are you mm-hmm. thinking this hauntedness leads to a kind of stanzaic form hmm. uh within the space of the first draft i think what i was talking about you know couplets and prose blocks for me are just easy mm-hmm. um and they're they sort of allow my thoughts to be sort of uninterrupted as possible by shape Mm. Um, you know, so when I'm writing in my notebook, it's either just like line, 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 or it is couplets just as a way to measure out the idea mm. and sort of keep track of myself through an idea, through a poem, um, so I can make it my way through. I think towards the final draft, I think you're right. I think uh, the poems that are in couplets tend to be a little bit more like lovely uh, <laughs> um, or happy or joyous, whatever it is. Uh, just because I think couplets are great for that. You know? <laughs> they are, you know, it's, a, it's just two things walking down the street together, you know? Um, they're very pretty. They're very easy. They allow some space to be breathed into the poem. And so, yeah, I think like couplets are like, you know, um, you know, one of the most used forms and one of the greatest. Uh, and yeah, I think I, I like the prose block um, or the blockiness of certain stanza shapes um, when I'm getting at something that I don't know if it's maybe it's grief. Mm. Um I think grief might be on a long list of things that I sometimes consider impenetrable mm. um, or 
unable to sort of like phase through easily right i can't pretty kitty pride my way through that joint uh and those i think maybe i want to embody something about that um unfazability that and in, 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 impenetrability um within the poem and so the poems become a little bit heftier um in terms of shape uh and otherwise you know sometimes just playing around with the random thing honestly i wish i could say for some poems that I had a lot of thought and reason, sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I ain't got no tressets yet, so I guess. <laughs> so I guess this poem has to be tressets. Uh, and yeah, I think it's really sometimes just about the a, a visual aesthetic that is sometimes I move or remove myself away from the content of the poem some and just mm. try to think about um, varying the, the eye of the reader as they make their mm. way through a collection and not trying to... Um, have form fatigue, as I call it. You know, if it, I think if you every if every poem is the same shape, they kind of start to look the same, mm-hmm. um, and it even becomes harder to just like flip through a book and like be like, oh well, where's that one poem? Mm-hmm. Um, if all you got are couplets, and I'm just flipping through a whole bunch of couplets, <laughs> you know, um, trying to look for the joint, um, and that's just you know sort of experiments and editing. You know, sometimes it's very purposeful, sometimes it's complete bullshit that I'm throwing mm-hmm. at the wall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's uh, something Ross Gay said once that really stuck with me about the difference between his second book and his third book. Mm -hmm. And as I remember it, he said that going into the really violent, sad material and bringing the shovel down allowed him to write a poem, a book that was more gentle and full of gratitude. Um, And so I'm wondering what your first book made possible for your second book Mm -hmm. um, and what this second book is making possible for your third forthcoming book. Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. I think about insert boy i love it very much um but it is sort of it's such a little baby ass book um what did it make possible it just made books possible like honestly i kind of there's another part of me where and i wouldn't say this if it's hard to say this because the book did well um but i wish i'd held on to insert boy a little bit longer Um, you were so young i was i was yeah you're still so young yeah i was 23 when it got picked up um and 25 by the time it came out um just a baby a child a wee lad (laughs) a wee lad uh (laughs) who did not need a book right um in some ways i think you know i i was um coming over from like spoken word land where that was sort of my only understanding of how to have a career in poetry for such a long time and for me, it wasn't a first book. It was like trying to have merch, really, at the end mm. of the day. I was like, I'm already doing these readings. And so I would like to have a book that I didn't print at Kinko's to, <laughs> um, to give out. And, you know, and like a lot of my friends in, the, in our similar age group, a lot of the folks in um, the Dark Noise Collective, which I'm a part of, we were all thinking about first books. And not mm. really because we had like a pressing question that we wanted to answer in a debut, but because we felt we, we all needed first books to happen. And so we might as well get to it. Um, <laughs> and if I could, I would go back and tell myself to slow down, mm-hmm. um, to not submit that book so much. It was like sort of the um, growing out of what was my th- senior thesis in undergrad. And, you know, I'm glad the world received it the way they did. Um, but when I look back through Insert Boy, I see somebody who's very excited about poems and still needs to marinate a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, there are a lot of things that I, I, I'm never running away from a failure. I think failure is how poetry happens. Amen. Um, but I, I see a lot of things in insert boy um, that I didn't quite have a handle on that I think um, were done better and don't call us dead. I do think about mm-hmm. them very close together. I think 
especially like poems like Summer Somewhere um, and some of the other ones through it. Um, there are just like things I'm thinking about or like tricks that I'm trying to play with in the space of the poem that I didn't have a handle on when I got to Enter Boy. And I, I wrote the shit out of Don't Call Us Dead, if I can say it my damn self. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. a freaking good book. Yes, yeah. it is. Damn it, shit. You uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, um, even before all the awards, when I finished that collection, I was like, you know what? If nothing else, I wrote my ass off. Uh, and, <laughs> um, and I wouldn't have been able to write my ass off in Don't Call Us Dead I don't, if, if without Enter Boy, um, mm. without a, a large scale way to fail mm-hmm. um, and to struggle with those ideas and to get them out for the first time that i could definitely master a little bit more on the repass um it's funny talking bringing back that that ross gay um idea because after writing and touring don't call us dead my next book is a shit ton more joyous um than don't call us dead was because i feel like i feel like for me um don't call us dead and answer where i definitely together and i feel like with don't call us dead i was able to like sort of close a chapter mm. um and at least on some of the ideas that I was thinking through in terms of um, police brutality and grief and mm-hmm. um, certain intersections with blackness. And now I feel like uh, the portrait that's portrayed in Homie, um, the forthcoming collection, is a little bit more complete. I don't know if the I don't know if the lyric is quite as there as it was in Don't Call Us Dead. I think I'm still exploring some new things and maybe I'll ride out for a couple more collections. Um, I think I've maybe exhausted uh, the the personal persona for a while. I mean, mm. I want to, I want to tuck I in a closet for a little bit mm. and move away from it. Um, but I am grateful to like all those collections and like how they have allowed me to sort of catalog the last 10 years of my life and thinking of the world. So yeah, they all build on each other um, in some kind of way. And, you know, I think you take the failures of one, and turn that into the strengths of another anyway yeah um, i remember reading in sir boy it was given to me by erica foreman for one thing um and she was like poems are great but you need to read in sir boy and i was like okay who is an s smith like <laughs> what are you talking about like cm bros didn't tell me to read this so why you know so, so i was like why are you giving me this you know like and i love cm bros so i was like if she said to read i'll read and i was like okay whatever so i read it and i was like okay this is this is this is it my little gay self is happy um <laughs> and so even thinking about from that to don't call us dead i remember reading this thing like denez had definitely leveled up in this yeah and so i think <laughs> i think it's for me it was like being a baby poet and then growing up until like a more understanding of poet more person who like knows poetry better and has a different kind of relationship to it it's kind of how i felt with Insert Boy and Don't Call Us Dead, right? Mm-hmm. They're a baby poet, a baby a baby book, right? Into a full-grown, you know, kind of project mm-hmm. where if you were, re- like if you were reading both of these books when they came out, it mm-hmm. feels like you've grown up with the book, mm-hmm. right? And with these and with these obsessions and with these, uh, this kind of grief mm-hmm. to where now it's like, I'm ready for the joy that happened in, in mm-hmm. Homie, right? I'm ready mm-hmm. for this person, this eye to experience life and their environment in a different way than they had been when they were a baby into this full grown mm-hmm. uh, speaker. Mm-hmm. So I love it. I love the girl. I'm ready for Homie to come out. So I can just be happy and mm-hmm. so I, can, I can cry of happiness <laughs> as opposed to crying of sadness. I don't know. There's going to be some sad. There's some sad. There's There's some there sad. has to be. Yeah, there, there can't be joy without No, 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 no. And that was the problem with Homie for a really, really long time. It was all it was happy. Just this, it was all happy and it was <laughs> it was a cheap happiness, you know, and I, um, it was, and it wasn't a happiness that was fought for. Now, and that was the, the hard part of me for writing that book is because I, at the end of the day, I still think that 
don't call us dead is joyous mm-hmm. um at the end it of the day but i think it yeah. is it's reaching for joy right it's still like in the in the pond asking for help but <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's got a handout you yeah. know uh nose is still above water mm-hmm. um and even in that fight for joy like i didn't know how that was the only way i knew how to access joy right so when i first started writing homie it was just like here's just like joy unlimited motherfuckers <laughs> you know <laughs> Like, you came for joy? Like, that's all this is. Because you'd already uh, written this book. You're like, if you want to see the stakes, it's like, read maybe this book. Mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. Don't Call Us Dead. And yeah. And, come but, to homie. Right. But then it was it was this question of like, well, okay, um, if I'm not reaching for joy, like, even if joy is like the level that we're riding on, like, um, then it became about like, how does joy comfort trauma? Um, mm. Or like, how does joy enclose itself around darkness and make mm. something else? Yeah. Um, and that became the search for the poems in Homie, right? Mm. It was not um, just for a while, it was just this like kind of cheaper exploration about just like, I love all my friends. <laughs> um, and then it was like, I love all my friends, but here's why. <laughs> like, like, yeah. You know, here's all the bullshit that makes like friendship right. mm. so powerful. Yeah. 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 I think often about like the relationship of language, obviously with those things, right? Mm-hmm. There is certain sort of cheap joy mm-hmm. that is really well known. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like really well trodden. So like writing those poems, there's no searching mm-hmm. to your point. I, I'm curious, sort of like, how do you take the draft of sort of that, like the thing that is known and then turn it into something that is searching? Well, bitch, say that again. <laughs> That's a good question, but I need to hear it one more time. <laughs> How do you take the draft of like a cheap known Mm -hmm. joy? Okay, got you. And and move that. And search for something within it. Huh. I think you got to throw the whole poem away. Oh. Uh, At least that's what it's been for me. You know, um, I think a lot of poems, you know, a poem isn't good if you know how it's going to end or even if you know everything about that topic right from jump, right? Uh, I think the way I've, typically done it is just to like take from that initial draft what i know and what feels most exciting to know um and then try to move that into a space of the unknown Mm. um typically how that starts is like usually i mean in a very uh technical kind of way usually it means like taking like the last two stanzas and starting from there Mm. or the latter quarter of a poem let's say um and started from there just because I feel like you're usually writing yourself into a poem anyway. Right. Uh, and the more revelatory things tend to happen towards the bottom of a poem or in the middle of a poem anyway, right? Um, you can't blow your load right at the top. Um, <laughs> and so then, yeah, you, so you just take the load and try to ex- extend the orgasm a little bit um, into what is unknown and possible and stranger. Uh, but for me, a lot of the times that, for me, a draft does not have to be based in something that was written before, right? Like I have this poem called Waiting on You to Die So I Can Be Myself. Mm-hmm. And that poem went through like six, seven, eight drafts. Um, but every draft was actually a new poem. It was still had the same title, um, which was sort of like my bay leaf that I like knew I was throwing in there to cook. <laughs> um, but every draft had to go in such a different way. Maybe there were similar ideas, maybe similar images, but never did they appear in the same way. And it was because 
if I still was like sort of playing around with the same known artifacts and words that I was playing around with, those drafts weren't taking me anywhere. And I was still getting this like cheap, way too easy poem that wasn't saying what I wanted to say, which was like, how did, how do you tell somebody I love you? And I also can't wait until your funeral so I can like fully live the rest of my life. Um, Because, because your living and your love comes with requirements um that mandates something different out of me than what i want Mm. um and i didn't get there until like draft seven um you know and draft seven only happened because i had to fully let go drafts one through six Mm. and not hold on to a language and not try to mine something from what was already there but actually just saying you know what i dug the wrong hole and so i'm gonna actually just come over here and try to (laughs) dig again Not an elegy from Don't Call Us Dead. How long does it take a story to become a legend? How long before a legend becomes a god or forgotten? Ask the rain what it was like to be the river. Then ask the river who it drowned. I'm sick of writing this poem but bring the boy, his new name, his same old body, ordinary black dead thing, bring him and we will mourn until we forget what we are mourning. Is that what being black is about? Not the joy of it, but the feeling you get when you're looking at your child, turn your head, then poof, no more child. That feeling, that's black think once a white girl was kidnapped and that's a trojan war later up the block troy got shot and that was tuesday Mm. are we not worthy of a city of ash of a thousand ships launched because we are missed i demand a war to bring the dead child back i at least demand a song ahead If I must call this their fate, I know the color of God's face. Do you expect me to dance? How do you expect me to dance when every day someone who looks like everyone I love is in a gunfight armed with skin? Look closely and you'll find a funeral frothing in the corners of my mouth, my mouth hungry for a prayer to make it all a lie. Reader, what does it feel like to be safe, white, How does it feel to dance when you're not dancing away the ghost? How does joy taste when not followed by will come in the morning? Mm. Reader, it's morning again. And somewhere, a mother is pulling her hands across her seed's cold shoulders, kissing what's left of his face. What, where is her joy? What's she to do with a child who will spoil soon? Mm. And what of the child? What was their last dream? Who sang to them while the world closed into dust? What cure maker did we just kill? What legend did we deny their legend? I have no room for grief. It's everywhere now. Mm. Listen to my laugh. And if you pay attention, you'll hear a wake. Prediction. The cop will walk free. Prediction. The boy will still be dead to begin again 
I'd give my tongue, a cop's tongue too. A boy I was a boy with took his own life. I forget black boys leave that way too. Have I spent too much time worrying about boys killing each other and being killed that I forgot the ones who do it with their own hands? Is that not black on black violence? A mother tucks her son into earth. Is it not the same plot? I have no words to bring him back. I am not magic enough. People at the funeral wondered what made him do it. People said he saw something. I think that's it. He saw something. What? The world? A road? Trees? A pair of ivory hands? His reflection? His sons? A river saying his name? Mm. Woo! Mm, thank you so much, Denez. Thank you. This is the way the, the form kind of changes over the poem right mm -hmm. um from monastics right into the couplets and it's couplets for a while right well couple sort of sets but mostly couplets for a while then again it dissolves back into monastics at the end and mm -hmm. how that kind of represents like this wrestling into this kind of steady form of like joy or interrogating what joy could be mm -hmm. and then it ends with like this again this restlessness right the, yeah, the yeah. questions about what the world arose right all these questions it just just so lovely just to see the form enacting the the content in such a beautiful way where it's almost easy to miss right the form mm -hmm. and doing this content kind of thing but it's done so seamlessly mm -hmm. um and even though there's section it still feels like uh there's a jointness to it that mm -hmm. it wouldn't be the same type of uh journeying and trajectory that wouldn't be without the the moving between monastics to couplets to mm -hmm. monastics again um it's lovely yeah. thank you mm -hmm. yeah i think of too like the image of the river right mm -hmm. like it, it it's like becoming a river yeah. right and then and then it sort of recedes mm -hmm. back into a greater body of water mm -hmm. um and that's so much what this poem's about right like it's like sort of about becoming and then mm -hmm. sort of returning and undoing yeah it's lovely mm. there's so much i i love and i've noted about this poem before but for some reason in this reading this moment where the reader is assumed to be white stood mm -hmm. out kind of for the first time. Mm -hmm, me too. Um, and I just think that's so fascinating, that decision. Mm. Um, was Were those lines that you wrestled with that you ever, can you talk about those a little bit? Just because um, you know that not every person reading this book is right. going to be. Um, no, because I think when I was writing um, the not an elegy poems, um, which were originally it wasn't this like super super long poem they were each um it was a series of poems each of which was not an elegy for some black person mm -hmm. that had been um killed so like not an elegy for mike brown i think was the first one, then, one yeah yeah so that one exists like on its own mm -hmm. um and if you read um the chat book that came out before don't call this dead black movie it's mm -hmm. like still it's called short film i think um in that collection but it still has the names attached you know so like um if i was called this their fate i i would know the color of god's face that's originally for ranisha mcbride mm -hmm. um what happened was i'll get to that question in a second yeah. um so what happened was um when i moved it to the space of the full-length collection there was already so much naming going on in the rest of the book that i wanted to sort of 
pull even this idea of what an elegy is not away from the idea of being for any specific person and sort of just try to muddy that a little bit more and bring all the poems together in a in a more seamless way that wasn't interrupted by names but really made it really got to the idea of what I was trying to get at with not an elegy of like I do not know these people personally mm -hmm. you know I think an elegy is a rather personal act mm -hmm. um, to to write an elegy for someone is to write a poem for their living and I only know these people in death mm -hmm. um, and so trying to move away and so trying to move further into that idea of like sort of the opposite of elegy um, while still being elegiac if you will mm -hmm. um, and so when I was writing that, I was so freaking angry with white people um, <laughs> at the time. And I wasn't interested in grieving with black people. I was interested in like trying to move the needle on, <clears throat> on white folks mm -hmm. uh, when I was writing those poems, right? I, black people knew, we knew that we were oppressed and dying and being murdered for, for, for years, for centuries, right? That, that is um, as American as apple pie and borders. And so, um, and so I wanted to speak directly to white folks when I was writing um, these not an elegy joints, especially because I knew white folks would find these poems delicious, right. Mm. Um, right? I knew that they would come for like the the the, the mm. sexiness of black death, right? Yeah. That they would be attracted to these poems mm. about Mike Brown and about um, about Tamir Rice and about all these folks, right? That they would come to it because it's like, oh, look at black grief, um, you know. Even if I'm telling you that's not what it is. And so now that I got you here, right? I'm also gonna interrogate you as yeah. well. And I'm curious, like, and that relates to maybe like the first question I was asking about audience too, right? Like this is one of those poems that really popped to me and you know, I think of like a youth open mic mm -hmm. and like I'm preaching to the choir at that point, mm -hmm. right? Like I don't have to tell them. Yeah. Uh, I don't have to tell them about police violence. Mm -hmm. However, when you make the shift to dear reader, mm -hmm. right? Knowing that like most poetry readers mm -hmm. are going to be like college educated white folks. Yeah. Like making that shift and still maintaining emotional stakes. Mm -hmm. Like how do you sort of ethically move forward knowing that you're bringing them here for sort of that sexiness without um uh commodifying it Ooh, i guess i don't know mm. um i don't know if i'm doing it right you sure. know um who does who does you <laughs> know <laughs> um i think i fuck up all the time mm. you know um even in the space of the poem i just think because it's a poem i i'm allowed a little bit more leeway um so i don't know if i'm doing it right i don't know if i'm drawing them in what i try to do um if i'm gonna like explicitly invite somebody into the poem in that way um is to not beat them up too bad <laughs> for, for like even coming into the poem in the first place yeah. um though i am very it's much an important lesson yeah it is it is right and like um and i can also tell white people fuck you in other poems there, there are other poems in this book you know dear white america that basically is a fuck you um <laughs> maybe love it huh and they love it and they love it that's their favorite poem <laughs> they, love they love it oh my god all the old white ladies are like i love dear white america it's my favorite thing i'm like that's your favorite that, that's your favorite okay I agree, I agree. <laughs> fuck us, fuck us um <laughs> Which also, I mean, given that, I'm just like, maybe I'm not going hard enough. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe your That's your ability to access pleasure um, out of this, so. out of being cussed mm -hmm. out. You know, I don't know if that's just like some fucked up shit about white guilt and how y'all internalize it or whether that's on me. And so it's like, how do I make you uncomfortable? I literally, the other week, I did a poem about killing white people and they were just clapping their little happy <laughs> hands off. Um, and be like, I love that poem. I'm like, I literally like said i was gonna murder you <laughs> like, like i should be arrested right now <laughs> like you're just over here buying the book you know like i want more you want more you want more um and it makes me maybe it also makes me realize like sort of how 
undangerous words can be sometimes. I think words are very dangerous things. I think they very much are. I think we live in a time in which we see that played out every day. Um, but I don't know. I, sometimes I... I don't. I don't know what else I got to do. You know, like I've like I've written like eight poems about like you know killing white people. A whole bunch more before that. So I was just like straight up angry, and I'm just like, oh yeah, it is so much stuff. And I was like, I just don't know what else I can say to make you believe my anger, um, and at least be scared enough of me to like change. Um, you know, because I think at the end of the day, right? Like I'm writing all these poems about killing white people, and I think I, I do just want like a peaceful world where we just like bake bread and raise each other's children <laughs> all day. Mm. Um, but the audience that maybe I want most to like engage with the poems is not interested in a reading poetry and mm. b poetry from my black ass. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I don't know. So so it's kind of. The question of audience is rather tricky. And I think I understand why poets say they don't write with an audience in mind, because I think sometimes that will keep you from going crazy. Um, you know, I don't always believe in that answer when people say they're not writing for anybody. I think there is purpose and power in writing um, towards someone given in every poem um, or editing towards someone, even if you're not writing the draft towards mm -hmm. them. Uh, but it's sort of, it is sort of becomes like this rather um, bubble popping moment when it's just like, oh, the white people heard me say all the things I wanted to say to them and all they did was clap. Mm. Mm. It's almost feel, <laughs> it almost feels like minstrel like, like they're like yeah. enjoying the performance Absolutely. of your grief and your anger, mm -hmm. but it's not yeah. performance, you're literally upset with them. Well, there's, yeah. the, there was the, there's the page break that actually really stuck out at me with Not Nelogy, the, mm. like, the dance one. Like, yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> where is it? Do you expect me to dance? And yeah. then the page break <laughs> into that. And yeah. you actually tripped up on the reading yeah. where I'm like, that's what that is, right? Yeah. It's this like, it's the performance mm -hmm. of that grief, mm -hmm. right? As a way to, to, bring, mm -hmm. to bring them in. Yeah. And also, I guess I, what I also want to say is I have to trust that something else is happening mm. beyond the space of the reading yeah. of as totally. well. Um, you know, that maybe you clap now, maybe that actually does leave a change right or like I've, i hear stories about like people feeling moved by the work or like mm -hmm. students being like you know like this poem really messed our teacher up and like they've been <laughs> acting different since then in a good way or mm -hmm. something like that you know um and so i i trust that there is a greater work going on but um i, but I don't know i think of um I just read a couple years ago, I read Ibram Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning book. It's like mm -hmm. the uh, the definitive history of racist ideas mm -hmm. in America. Um, and in his uh, sort of epilogue, he really goes on about like who the who are the people we're trying to convince and who are the people we're talking to. Mm -hmm. um, and the racists are not the people we talk to. Mm -hmm. We're trying to talk mm -hmm. to at least sort of like assimilationists, people in the middle who like sort of can, can change mm -hmm. uh, as anti-racists. Right? He sort of he partitions these three groups of people. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting to hear you say that you are sort of really targeting, yeah. right? Your audience is the people that we're not supposed to be talking to. Mm -hmm. And in some and ways, yeah, yeah and, and sometimes, yeah. not always, but in some ways that is a signal to sort of that middle, hmm. right? And, and I think there's some virtue in that um, that I'm certainly going to be thinking about <laughs> for a little bit there. Yeah. You know, I was just reading, I just went to my phone so I could get this quote, but I was just reading um, Kiese Limon's uh, Heavy the other day, mm -hmm. and this part fucked me up. I'd fallen in love with provoking white folks, which really meant I'd fallen in love with begging white people to free us mm -hmm. by demanding that they radically love, love themselves more. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I was shook um, mm-hmm. when I read that because I could I know all the ways that I participate <laughs> in that very same thing, right? Sure. Um, that I had fallen in love with just it's what we're talking about right now, you know, pushing white folks mm-hmm. to demand that the part that really fucked me up is that by radically demanding that they love themselves more, yeah, uh, right? Yeah, it's a lot to sure. take yeah. in. Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm still a, taking it in. That's I a Baldwin that idea too, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that like hating uh, like by hating others white people are hating themselves in yeah. that moment like it's it's, it's a self-hate yeah mm-hmm. and i agree with that but also it's like no but you literally hate me <laughs> <laughs> like literally <laughs> you like literally hate like, me you, you know to, to, to die yeah, you know like yeah you excuse it away so much you know um and so it's a fuck of idea i don't know what to say back to kiese for that but i know it's been um sitting with me that and then there's a moment in um one of terrence hayes sonnets that kind of messed me up too um where he just talks about like sort of the capital made off talking about black death and i was yeah. like yep you're right and i know I, th- I went through that um i feel very complicated ways um that the fact that like sort of my sort of rise in the american poetic consciousness is tied to black lives matter and the death of black folks right mm-hmm. um and it wasn't like my work was being celebrated, right? Um, but it was like my work about this very specific thing was like was sort of what catapulted to me in a certain yeah. way. I'm I'm cognizant of the poems that made me big. Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm curious about like sort of that the relationship between that violence and intimacy, like the necessity of that violence mm-hmm. to achieve that intimacy. Mm-hmm. Are you? I mean, like, how conscious of that are you when you're writing? Um, is that the world's fault or yours? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's everybody's fault. Uh, I don't Coming know. in hot. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, um, I guess I'm like less interested in like reproducing the violence that exists in the world, mm. and I'm more interested in like encouraging the violence that I wish was out there. Mm. Um, and may- <laughs> okay, uh, <laughs> that was a plot twist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at least more in like newer works, right? Like I'm less interested in like harping on the violence that we all know exists, and more being like, I think like while homie is definitely a book about friendship there's also several points where it goes like why aren't we killing more people (laughs) (laughs) are they still alive yeah yeah, you know it's just like you know like why don't we have guns you know like why haven't you killed someone today Uh, (laughs) now's a good time I'm, i'm scared i'm gonna get arrested for this next book like i think i think it's really like a book about you know, like real ass revolution hiding within a book about friendship. Mm. Um, it's not always a realist thing, though. It is. Yeah. It is. It's also it a book really about is. sex hiding in a book about friendship. It's a lot yeah. of things. Um, a lot of hidden things. A lot yeah. of hidden homie. things. Uh, homie. homie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a lot of hidden things within that. Um, and yeah, so I guess I'm I'm fine with the dance of 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 intimacy and violence. I understand. You know, my whole life I've understood how those two spaces collide. Shout out dysfunctional homes. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but I think, yeah, I think I, I'm not, I don't see them as like polar opposites. I think violence can be a kind of intimacy and love too, mm. um, depending on where it's directed. I think, I think uh, defending and fighting for your people is an act of love. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thanks so much to Denez Smith for chatting with us today and thanks to Open Books, A Poem Emporium for the space in which to record. If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button and rate us five stars, which helps other folks looking for poetry podcasts find us. Lastly, follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send on your questions, thoughts, and ideas for literary-themed cocktails to thepoetsalonpod at gmail.com. Peace.
Fed in spaghetti, fed in the. Oh. 